advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm back here with Paul Van Eden. Before we pick up where we left off with Paul on uh, discussing uh, interest rates, treasury rates, uh, I need to mention our uh, sponsors for the second hour, they are Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Goldrich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. Uh, well, Paul, when we went to break, we were talking about interest rates. We were talking about this enormous uh, indebtedness of the U.S. and this enormous bull market in the long treasury market. I mean, I remember very well back in 1982 when nobody wanted to buy stocks and interest rates were extremely high and people were getting incredibly high yields uh, in, by buying treasuries, you know, double-digit yields. My first mortgage was a 17.5% mortgage in 1981. Uh, and that, I mean, but from that time on, we've had the most incredible bull market in history, as you pointed out, perhaps the lowest interest rates we've ever had in the United States. How long can this go on, Paul? I don't know how long it's going to go on. I mean, clearly it's going to go on for at least a few more months and maybe several years, but and, and I have no idea how long it's going to go on. What I'm convinced of is that it won't go on forever. Uh, the reason I'm so convinced about that is is because of the conversation we had before the break. Mm-hmm. The problem in the United States is too much debt. Mm-hmm. Too much debt will put pressure on the price of debt. And if the price of debt goes down, bond prices goes down, interest rates go up. Mm-hmm. So this party is going to come to an end. But there's an interesting thing that follows on from what you just mentioned, is that since the 1980s, interest rates have been falling. Now we have the lowest interest rates in history and what has happened as a consequence of that is that people have borrowed more, and, they, and as a result of that, they have lived a lifestyle that mm-hmm. has exceeded their means of production. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about anybody in specific here, mm-hmm. but the nation as a whole mm-hmm. has lived above its, its level of production, lived above its income level. Sure. And so what we've done is we've taken future wealth, and brought it forward to today. We've spent today what we were going to produce in the future. Mm-hmm. And in, in large part, that's, the, that's what went wrong, and that's the price that we're paying right now. Now, the, the, the fix for that, the correction is, that living standards have to come down to the point where the living standards are now below the level of production mm-hmm. so that we can pay back. Mm-hmm that future production that we borrowed. And when interest rates go up, ultimately they will. When interest rates go up, people will borrow less because it will be expensive. People will spend less because they don't have, because they can't borrow the future to spend today. And, And that process of living within its means will correct a lot of the problems that exist now so when people look around and they say, oh, interest rates can't go up, that's mm-hmm. a nonsensical statement. Of course they can go up. Sure. Yeah. But what's the effect of that's going to be? And in my opinion, the effect is going to be very positive. It's going to be positive because it's going to cause people, corporations, and governments to repair their balance sheets. Why? Because they have no choice. I would guess it's also going to be positive, Paul, for people who manage to have some cash. Instead of being debtors, they are uh, creditors. They are cash rich. They're going to be in a position also to enjoy those higher rates. That would also be a benefit. They will be able to enjoy higher rates, 
But, Jay, since about 2008, in the few times that I have spoken at conferences, I have urged people to keep more cash mm-hmm. because cash was in a bear market. Everybody wanted stuff. Everybody mm-hmm. wanted gold and copper mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stuff. You know, they wanted second homes and swimming pools. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted cash. Cash mm-hmm. was in a bear market. Mm-hmm. My belief was that when cash is in a bear market, you should hoard cash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because there will come a time when stuff gets into a bear market, where houses become cheap, when you know stocks become cheap, when gold becomes cheap, when copper becomes cheap. And I think we've seen that process started. Certainly in the U.S. real estate market, that's true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to follow in other markets. Base metal prices have been coming down. The exception is copper. But if you look at lead, zinc, aluminum, nickel, those prices have been falling since 2007. Oh, well, copper, uh, I, I saw, uh, I saw a, a news item the other day in the Financial Times that actually the Chinese are starting to sell copper now. I'm wondering if copper might not have its turn. What, what is your view? This is a bit of a departure from a discussion, but it's, uh, it's part of, a part of the equation. What do you see about, what do you see in China? Do you see, because one of the ar- arguments against what you're saying is never mind China's gonna, they have all these, you know, uh, millions and millions of people that have to, they're striving for a middle-class existence and they're going to gonna keep on buying things. What are your, what's your views on, on China? Uh, I think China has really big problems ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Approximately 12% of China's GDP is, re- is residential real estate investment. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the housing construction boom, mm-hmm. you know, all those condos that are being built in China, mm-hmm. According to some articles I've read, and I believe, I'm under correction, Jay, here, I believe that the quote originally comes from the BBC, but I'm not 100% mm-hmm. sure of it. Mm-hmm. But there are approximately 64 million empty apartments in China. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just do some very, you know, very simple math. You know, 64 million empty apartments. If we put four people in each apartment, that's 256 million that people that we can house just in the empty apartments in China. Mm-hmm. That's almost equal to the population of the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's just empty apartments. So how do you sustain an economy when what you're doing is building all of these structures that cannot be used? Mm-hmm. That's destruction of capital. Mm-hmm. So it's a state planning that, that drove that to keep the economy going that caused uh, the boom in copper and, and all the stuff that uh, mining companies have benefited from. Certainly I'm also seeing the major mining companies like BHP and others uh, uh, that are really starting to look to, um, uh, to cut costs. They seem to be very concerned about exactly what you're saying. They um, should be. Yeah. yeah. Here's another little little tidbit of interesting information. Earlier in the show when we talked about U.S. monetary inflation, we mentioned Mm -hmm. that it was around 8 to 10% in the Mm -hmm. 70s. It's running around 7% right now. Mm -hmm. The average monetary inflation for China for the last four years is over 20%. Mm. Mm. If you're concerned about monetary inflation and the impact that that has on the value of currencies, the primary concern should be with China and the Chinese currency. Mm-hmm. So people talk about the $2 trillion that China has in foreign exchange reserves. They're going to need it mm-hmm. because the biggest threat facing the Chinese currency is not that the currency is going to increase in value. It's that the currency is going to plummet in value mm-hmm. as a result of the massive inflation, mm-hmm. monetary inflation in China. Mm-hmm. So China is going to need those foreign exchange reserves yeah. in order to protect their currency on foreign exchange markets. And interestingly enough, Paul, we're hearing that China, which had such a major advantage in manufacturing, is now starting to lose some of that advantage with uh, higher wages and so forth, and and some of that uh, manufacturing activity is going elsewhere, even some of it, a little bit of it, perhaps, coming back to the United States, from what I'm hearing. That's exactly correct, and you're going to find that, because with the rate of monetary inflation in China, they're going to have a huge social problem Mm -hmm. if wages don't increase in proportion to the monetary inflation. I mean, it's going to destroy mm-hmm. what little, you know, you know, kernel of a middle class they're trying to build. Mm-hmm. But now, now you've touched on something else that's interesting, and you're saying that maybe some of those jobs come back to the United States. Well, mm-hmm. let me just give you three reasons why I think the U.S. probably 
has bottomed in terms of its economic activity. And three mm-hmm. reasons why I think the U.S. is going to do a lot better in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. The first reason, we've talked about this already, we have the lowest interest rates in history in the United States. What that means is right now, the cost of money is the cheapest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. So if you want to borrow money for business, for expansion, for whatever, these are the lowest rates they've ever been. Mm-hmm. It will change eventually, but right now, mm-hmm. money in the U.S. is cheap. Mm-hmm. Second reason, we have very high unemployment. Mm-hmm. You know, there are probably around 13 to 15 million people who are part of the workforce mm-hmm. who are not currently employed. What that means is that there's an abundance of labor. Mm-hmm. So you've got cheap money, lots mm-hmm. of labor. Mm-hmm. But the most interesting thing, is that as a result of horizontal drilling and fracking in the natural Mm -hmm. gas business, natural gas prices are historically cheap. Mm -hmm. And wholesale electricity prices in the United States are falling. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very significant. Um, If you look at at what's what's happening in in, uh, electricity, for example, the, the usage of coal, you look at the consumption of coal from 2005 to 2010 to generate electricity, Coal mm-hmm. consumption is down almost 8%. Petroleum consumption is down o- about 70, 70%, 70. Hmm. Natural gas consumption is up 26%. Mm-hmm. And the result of all of that is this decline in, in electricity prices. Electri- wholesale electricity prices in the United States are down 50% since 2008. Mm-hmm. Wholesale electricity prices fell 10% just in the fourth quarter of 2011. Yeah, that's big. That that could be a really big advantage in terms of a lot of the, some manufacturing heavier heavier manufacturing uh, items. I would I would guess three good reasons. But you know, Paul, you mentioned uh, cheap money. Um, Corporations have a lot of money now. A lot of the bigger ones, anyway, are doing extremely well in the United States. The consumers aren't borrowing because they're not borrowing too much because they've been tapped out, I suppose. They're not spending a whole lot now because their wages are down in real terms and so forth. But but are you seeing some increase in lending now? I mean, I think you indicated the last time you were on the show that you see some of that picking up because one of the things I've been hearing from A. Gary Schilling and others, is that uh, the banks are not lending uh, as much as it was in the 1930s, not lending, the pushing on the string analogy. You know, you can't, the people that would like to borrow are not credit worthy, and the companies and people that, that are credit worthy don't want to borrow. Are you seeing that changing now? And, and with lower energy prices, some of the lower, uh, lower labor uh, costs, perhaps uh, a pickup then of, of economic activity. All right, so you're actually bringing the conversation full circle because mm-hmm. what you're talking about now in terms of bank lending comes right back to the concept of what is money. Mm-hmm. We defined money as, as primarily being bank deposit accounts, but how do bank deposit accounts increase? They increase because banks lend out money. Mm-hmm. When banks make loans, the money supply increases. When people pay loans back, the money supply decreases. Mm-hmm. What happened in 2008 after the financial crisis is that bank lending collapsed. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you take out of the money supply equation the amount of money pumped into the, into the monetary system by the Fed in QE1, then the monetary inflation rate would have been very close to zero. Mm-hmm. Meaning it would have been flirting with deflation. Mm-hmm. Of course, nobody wanted that. That's why QE1 was introduced. Sure. When QE1 came to an end, the money supply started, the rate of, mo- of inflation, monetary inflation, started to fall quite rapidly again, and QE2 was introduced. Mm-hmm. But the 7%, and it's actually a little higher, the 7 plus percent of monetary inflation that we're seeing right now mm-hmm. is not a result of quantitative easing, mm-hmm. which means the banks are lending. Okay. The money supply is increasing. The system is working. Mm-hmm. So two things come from that. One is the system appears to have normalized to a large extent. Hmm. And because there's positive monetary inflation of about 7%, there's no reason for QE3. So personally, I don't expect QE3 anytime soon unless this rate of monetary inflation 
collapses again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing, and this is the specific question you asked, is yes, we are seeing banks lending. That's why we've got this positive monetary inflation rate. Mm -hmm. Well, um, how do you know that that, uh, the monetary inflation is not a result of QE2? Would that not have increased the deposits? Yes, it would, but we already saw that QE2 came to an end. Okay, so since QE2, it's still raising, it's still growing, okay. So since QE2 ended, uh-huh. the, the, the rate of monetary inflation is down a little bit, but not significant enough mm-hmm. to cause the Fed to introduce QE3. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I told you, because right now we're not, there is no quantitative easing, so the, the banking system is running on its own right now without quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. And we said the inflation rate was 7.3%. You said that was high. Well, yeah. if the inflation rate is high, why do we expect QE3? Mm-hmm. Also, the inflation rate is high because banks are lending and people, you know, entities, so sure. consumers and corporations are borrowing. Sure, sure. There's no reason to panic right now. Sure. Well, through the fractional reserve banking system, as you point out, uh, when loans are made, that's how you multiply the uh, the deposits and the, the money supply. So, uh, so you, you're painting a pretty optimistic picture in some ways, Paul. Do you think, though, given all that's going on in Europe and contagion and all the concerns there, you said if if we don't have another sort of Lehman Brothers event, but do you think that certainly is not with? Uh, I mean, that's certainly within the realm of possibility, isn't it? It's within the realm of possibility, but I don't think it's going to happen. And it's very simple. Financial catastrophes happen because nobody's paying attention. People don't expect it to happen. You know, you and I were perhaps amongst the few people who in 2005 and 2006 were talking about real estate bubbles. Sure. But the the market in general, and particularly the financial industry and government, were not in the least concerned with real estate prices in 2005 and 2006. No. So when the when the real estate collapse came, it took them by surprise. And when the when the financial crisis came, it took everybody by surprise. That's why it was a crisis. But right now, everybody is focused on these financial crises. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there's so much attention on this right now that it's almost impossible for a crisis to occur. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we're going to find another financial crisis in the United States. There's too much focus on it. Mm-hmm. So I you, do, uh, however, and Jay, this is an important point. Yeah. I do, however, think that the United States is about two years ahead of Europe in dealing with its crisis relative to Europe's crisis. Mm, okay. So while things are calming down in the United States, while things are normalizing in the United States, that's not the case in Europe. So on a relative basis, the U.S. dollar is going to be strong against the euro. I also think China has <clears throat> problems. And so I, my belief is that we're entering a phase not only where fundamentally we can paint a, an optimistic picture, picture for the United States as we did with labor, interest rates, and electricity prices, but we can also paint a relatively good picture for the U.S. dollar versus the other major currencies in the world. Hmm. And I think when you put all of that together, you can start to become optimistic about the near-term future for both the U.S. dollar and the U.S. economy. Okay, but if we start to look at rising interest rates, what's that going to do to the U.S. Treasury? You're going to say we're going to have increase in taxes in one way or another. Um, I don't know how it's going to shake out. And that, you know, we're, we're hearing Obama, of course, wanting to tax the rich. Uh, rich, I don't know how you define that, but uh, there's a lot of people of pretty moderate means that, that I know that would be deemed rich. And I cringe at the idea of having to see my... My tax rate here in New York City, which is not that far from 50%, go up higher than that. I'm Um, sure you do cringe about that. But let me ask you a very, very simple question. In the history of the United States, which was the period in which the U.S. economy grew the most? Which was the best 100 years in the history of the United States? Oh, I would would guess it would be, well, best 100 years? In the 1900s, probably. The 1900s, or, or, late, or perhaps or even late 1800s. the 20th century, yeah. maybe even the last 100 years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from 1900 to 2000, mm-hmm. they were pretty good. What happened to tax rates during that time? They went up a lot. They went from, you know, income tax went from nothing yeah. 
to where you're describing them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if I told you that arguably the best 100 years in the history of the United States are going to go hand in hand with U.S. income tax rates going from zero to 50%, you'd tell me I was insane. Yeah. So if I'm saying to you now that the U.S. could go through, could get out of this economic mess through growth, and that'll go hand in hand with higher interest rates and higher tax rates, you're going to tell me I'm insane. But if you look at history, it is entirely possible. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say you're insane because I think the interest rates uh, are an issue that probably, you know, intuitively people think low interest rates stimulate growth. I'm not so sure I'm convinced of that, um, but that's a whole other topic. I, I do want to talk in the remaining time we have left, and my engineer is telling me we only have four minutes. I do want to ask you uh, to get on to your gold uh, model a little bit and how you're looking at a, a fair value for gold or a real value for gold. You mentioned the dollar. You're expecting with this growth and with the other problems around the world that the dollar could be unexpectedly strong, not unexpectedly by you and myself perhaps, but most people believe that we're going to have a weak dollar and a lot of our gold bug inflation, hyperinflation friends are looking for a complete collapse of the dollar. Okay, so you believe in a stronger dollar, but talk to us a little bit about applying your your monetary uh, calculations to the price of gold, and where do you think uh, sort of a fair price or a real intrinsic price of gold is these days based on inflation? Sure. Well, first let me state I'm a gold bug, meaning I believe gold is money. Yes. I'm not always a gold bull. I yes. was a gold bull between 2000 and 2008. Mm -hmm. I am not a gold bull at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'm a gold bear. The reason mm -hmm. I'm a gold bear is because I... Be because I really do believe gold is money. But if gold is money, we should be able to calculate the monetary inflation rate of gold just like we do for the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. In fact, we can do that very simply because the inflation rate of gold is nothing other than the amount of gold that we mine every year, less that small amount of gold that gets taken out of circulation through industrial fabrication, as a function of the total gold supply, so all the gold that we've mined up until now. Mm -hmm. We can calculate the, the, monetary, the monetary inflation rate of gold. It runs around 1.5% a year at the mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. We can calculate the monetary inflation rate of the dollar. Let's say that runs 7.5% just to keep the math simple. Mm -hmm. That means relative to gold, the dollar is going up, is increasing in supply by about 6%. Mm -hmm. Using that line of reasoning and using data that I've uh, uh, got mm -hmm. going back to the 19 to the year 1900. Mm -hmm. I calculate the relative change in value of gold to the U.S. dollar over the last 112 years, mm -hmm. and and based on that, I calculate what I think gold is worth today in terms of U.S. dollars based on this relative inflation rate, and that number comes to around 900 dollars an ounce. Well, that's going to shock a lot of our listeners. They're going to get scared, have the bejeebers scared out of them, Paul. What are they supposed to do, sell all their gold stocks now? Oh, Jay, you underestimate these guys. They're not going to get scared. They're just not going to believe me. They're going to get angry at me. They're going to send me hate mail, but they will not get scared. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they should listen to Paul Van Eden. Uh, you're, as you point out, and there's a discussion, I don't know if this is available on your website as well, the discussion on how you value gold, and there's some excellent charts there that help uh, to give a picture of uh, of the gold price. And as you point out, it's not meant to be a predictor of where the gold price is going, but to give you a sense of whether or not gold is overvalued or undervalued, right, at yes, any given exactly. time. It, right. it, that's exactly what it is. It's not the price prediction. It's a value statement. So I think gold is worth about $900 an ounce. Maybe it'll go up in price. Maybe it'll go down in price. But if, if I think it's worth $900 an ounce, I don't have much interest in buying physical gold right now because I think I'm overpaying for it. Yeah. Yeah, I interestingly enough. Uh, uh, so what does that do then to the gold mining sector, Paul? One of the things that I've noticed uh, since Lehman Brothers is that the real price of gold has risen dramatically, and I measure that. Um, you know, for better or worse, I measure it against the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. And right before Lehman, Lehman Brothers, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Fund. By March of 2009, it skyrocketed to 44%. 
it came back to about 30%. Then with the uh, European crisis brewing, uh, the first Greek crisis, it went up to 42, and then subsequently 48%. It's now about 44, 45. The point is that the gold relative to energy, to uh, materials, to food, uh, all kinds of clothing, it went up very dramatically. And with that, the gold mining companies' profits have surged. The big guys are doing very well. The share prices aren't reflecting that, and maybe maybe the market is seeing what you're seeing. But the share prices, uh, the companies themselves are doing very well. Where do you think the gold mining sector is headed then with this kind of a, a price uh, situation? And we do have lower energy costs, for example, in the U.S. in some markets. Every gold mine is uh, different. But but just in general, with the last uh, few seconds that we have left, what what do you think about gold mining companies right now? Are you sort of you'd be sort of bearish on them too? I guess. Mining companies, I'd be very bearish. Uh, I don't own any gold mining companies. Um, I think they're going to go down in price with the gold price itself. Mm -hmm. I do, however, own gold exploration companies, and their share prices were decimated. And I think that we are entering into a period of time of maybe, you know, 12 to 24 months in which the prices of mineral exploration companies as a sector, including gold exploration companies, are going to get very, 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 very cheap. They're already very, very cheap. Exactly right. This Mm -hmm. is the bear market in which you need to be paying attention to that sector very specifically. Mm -hmm. So so you you see this as a cyclical bear market within a secular bull or, or not? I don't know the difference between yeah. secular and cyclical okay. bull markets. It's a it's a matter of opinion and definition. Yeah. Now, we could spend an of afternoon course. talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough, Paul. You know, we're out of time unfortunately. We could have so many more uh so many more uh, items to discuss. I want to thank you very much for sharing your time with our listeners. Very insightful folks. Again, go to uh, it's Paul Van Eden. Com. Is that it, Paul? That's your Yes, PaulVanEden.com. And you can keep up with the actual money supply, uh, um, the real inflation rate, and so on and so forth. I think some great insights there, folks. You know, we what we try to do on this show is to bring uh, ideas that are not necessarily popular, ideas that I may not want to hear sometimes, but, you know, sometimes we have to hear things we don't want to hear for our own good. And Paul Van Eden is always sort of a contrarian, that not just for the sake of being a contrarian, but he is a person that thinks for himself and comes up with ideas that are quite a bit different than what we hear, even within the gold mining sort of gold bug community. So I want to thank you very much, Paul, for sharing your ideas, your insights with us. They're very, very valuable, and I hope we can have you back again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Jay. I really enjoyed it. Look Appreciate forward it as to seeing well. you in New York uh, next week, I guess it is. So Yes, well, okay, very folks, soon. don't go away. We're going to be right back with Jeff Dice, Ron Paul's chief of staff. We're going to talk to Jeff about uh, the subcommittee meetings that his uh, that his boss is chairing right now in Washington. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Jeff Dice. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. 
by applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm really pleased to be with uh, Jeff Deist, Congressman Paul's uh, chief of staff. And Jeff uh, has been on this show a number of times. He is a, a tax attorney and a long-term libertarian activist. Uh, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he's got a lot of, uh, a lot of insights into, uh, into the markets. He certainly, as a tax accountant, knows better than most of us uh, what goes on and um, uh, behind the scenes and, and what goes on with, with clients and how how the law is not necessarily perhaps applied equally to all of us, I suppose, but uh, we won't go there today. What, what, what I do want to talk to Jeff about, though, is what's been going on in Washington with his boss uh, chairing the subcommittee uh, hearings uh, to do with the, um, uh, with the central bank. Thanks, uh, Jeff, for joining us again. Thanks, Jed. I, I enjoyed listening to Mr. Van Eden. Uh, I will say this. I'll throw this out there. Even, even gold at 900 is uh, not a problem if you bought a bunch at 350, right? <laughs> Which wasn't all that long ago. Yeah, but well, uh, no. Paul, you know, I don't know if I. I mean, it could be we see 900 dollars gold. I mean, it was going to make a lot of people shudder that listen to this show. Uh, but I don't know. And one of the things that that I do appreciate about Paul, though, is that he says that markets will ultimately prevail. And I think even though governments can um, can cause an awful lot of trouble for a long time and can try to defy. The natural laws of, of markets. They um, ultimately they do win. And Paul's view is that we're going to see whether the government likes it or not, whether Bernanke likes it or not, much higher interest rates. And I, I just you know to me to get your head around high interest rates with all this debt, it just it, it tells me that we've got some very very difficult times ahead of us. I don't know what you if you'd like to express some thoughts on that or not. Well, the last time we had really high interest rates in the 70s, we didn't have nearly the uh, the uh, debt that we have today. Yeah. As a Nothing like it. We didn't have the uh, entitlement debacle that we're facing with all the baby boomers retiring. Yes. And we didn't have uh, the uh, staggering amount of debt in the other major global currency, the euro. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it seems like central banks kick the can down the road and they turn small problems into big problems. And, and yeah. that's really uh, one of the reasons uh, Dr. Paul had a hearing today, which is basically to delve further into uh, some of the legislative proposals in Congress to deal with monetary policy. And those proposals range from uh, Congressman Paul's proposal, which, of course, is to do away with the Fed and let, uh, let money be a commodity like any other and stop this centralized planning nonsense and actually have capitalism yeah. in America. All, right. and, and, but other proposals from other Republicans and Democrats range all the way from sort of monetarist ideas of a, of a John Taylor at Stanford, who was one of our witnesses today, um, and then further along to uh, some of the more left liberal ideas, you know, the greenbackers, um, who think that Congress, in its wisdom, ought to, to determine the money supply rather than these uh, fat cats at the Fed. So we had a lively de- debate. You know, no other member of Congress has any, anything even slightly philosophical or intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the... Uh, the financial networks love it because they actually get to hear some substantive talk. Um, and, uh, you know, I, Ron Paul is a big believer in let the left 
let the statists you know, play, state their ideas plainly. We don't need to hide from them. Yeah. Uh, the Paul Krugmans of the world, the people should know what they're saying. And what they're saying is absolutely preposterous. They're saying that, that the staggering amount of debt we have doesn't matter. They're saying that Social Security and Medicare are just fine, even though, you know, there used to be 12 people paying in for every one recipient. People used to die in their 60s, not their 90s. You're right. Um, they're saying that we can continue to, to print our way to prosperity. One of their witnesses today, uh, Miss Rivlin, you remember her, of course. Sure, Alice uh, Rivlin. A Fed, Fed member, um, you know, kept calling for an accommodative. She only, not only wants an accommodative monetary policy, which means more QE whatever, mm-hmm. she also wants an accommodative fiscal policy, which to her, of course, means high taxes and high spending. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, they, these people are completely on Mars. They're on a different planet. Um, you know, to call them ostriches would be too kind yeah. And, and and that's good. It should be all laid out for everyone to see. I mean, and, and I think Dr. Paul's strongest proposal of all is to say, look, simply legalize gold, silver, or whatever as 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 currency in America. You can keep your Fed back dollar. You can keep your Federal Reserve. You can keep your Ben Bernanke and keep doing what you're doing. You can keep the euro. Uh, we don't have to change a thing. And if, and if I'm wrong, then uh, gold and silver will perish as right. as currencies. If if I'm right, uh, they'll prosper. Let the market right. decide. But Jay, we we literally live in a country where you can go to jail for using something other than a U.S. dollar, and uh, right. um, I, I you know uh, that's not freedom for 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 trade for simple trade uh, issues that that you should be able to uh if Joe the plumber wants to come over and and and, and do fix your your toilet you should be able to give him a a silver coin or two in exchange for that i mean if to take that sort of basic freedom away is uh, is very dangerous i think and uh um, and we're seeing issues in places like south africa for example uh, uh, was uh, uh privileged to hear an author talk about uh, what's going on in south africa since uh, the apartheid situation uh, was done away with. Well, she wasn't condoning apartheid by any means, but she was just saying that what has, what happened, at least under apartheid, is there was a certain semblance of property rights, and and whether you were black or white, if your property was defied, uh, taken away, you you know you had recourse through the courts. Well, now that they've basically done away with this notion of property rights, then what we're seeing is violence, and this isn't reported in the Western press, but we're seeing a huge amount of just a just a hellhole developing over there, basically. Where, where, and, it, and it all stems from property rights, because if you take away the property rights, then you take away uh, your freedom and your liberty to be your person, who you are. So that's what's really at stake here. But let me ask you, Jeff, Ron's proposal is not so much to say de, uh, to, to make the Fed illegal. It's more to just let's let, them, let's let gold or silver compete with the dollar, right? Simply legalize competing currencies. Right. That's all we ask. Now, now obviously... Dr. Paul would like to see the Fed abolished, and right. I think anybody who claims to be a capitalist or mm-hmm. want free markets um, should feel the same way. I, I definitely, frankly, do not understand these these Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, you know, types, these Forbes types who think the Fed represents capitalism. It's centralized mm-hmm. planning. Yeah, uh, it's it's absolutely Soviet, and it's no different than having a group of p- a board sit around a table somewhere in a quasi-governmental agency and decide how much wheat should be produced yeah. and what the cost of the bushel of wheat should be. Right. Um, it's, it's absolutely anti-capitalist, um, okay. and central banks are the enemies of capitalism. There's no question. Yeah, yeah and, and when you think about it, uh, virtually half of every transaction has to do with, with what they're controlling and monopolizing. That's the monetary, the monetary system. Sure, sure. So, Everybody, when, they, when someone wants to go buy a Honda or an iPad or whatever, they look at the quality of the item they're buying, or if they want to buy a service, they look at the quality of the service you're buying. But the, mm-hmm. 50% of that transaction is the dollar you're giving for it. And what's the quality of that? What's the future value of that? So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's as though um, we say, well, government doesn't run the economy; it just runs the lifeblood of it, called money. Jeff, was there coverage today uh, in the mainstream press on the committee? There was. There was some coverage on the financial networks. Um, video of today's hearing, you're going to be able to find at the if you just Google the House Financial Services Committee, which you, which used to be called the Banking Committee, of course. Um, and you know the the financial press lo- loves to follow um, uh, Ron's hearings, but they also like to follow uh, John Taylor, some other you know uh, some mm-hmm. of the names that were there on our uh, witness panel. 
Um, we had Barney Frank testify today. We had some other members of Congress testify on their own legislative bill. So it was pretty good stuff today, pretty lively. Oh, good. Did, was Dennis Kucinich there by any chance? He wasn't. He does have, I guess, what we would call a greenbacker proposal yes. uh-huh. um, in, in the form of a bill in Congress. But, uh, um, you know, his, his bill was discussed. And, uh, you know, we, we, as I said, Dr. Paul welcomes all these voices. I mean, let's, ha- let's hear it out. Let's let them talk. Let's let the people know what they're talking about. And then, of course, Ron provides the contrast to that. Uh, and he did a very nice job of that when he was on a, a debate recently on one of the major networks with uh, Paul Krugman. And could you talk about that a little bit? How did that go? Well, uh, you know, he was on one of the financial shows uh, basically arguing against uh, more Fed accommodation. Krugman was on there basically arguing that we need more spending, uh, more monetary stimulus by the Fed. And it was good because, the again, the status should should have to really sort of lay out their argument, which is that, um, you know, we can somehow continue to inflate the U.S. dollar and it's not going to come back to bite us and the rest of the world is going to keep buying our bond debt and somehow it's all going to be peachy and what we really need to get us out of this economic doldrum is just more spending. And, and, of course, the Krugmans of the world would say if you create a bunch of money and then you go spend it on a bunch of useless government uh, you know, uh, jobs that, that the market didn't demand, that that, add, that, that equates to increased GDP, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is hilarious, of course. But, hey, let's, uh, you know, let's really lay bare what the Keynesian ideas are, and, and then let's let people – Learn about Austrianism and, and uh, where uh, GDP is uh, is calculated in an honest fashion. Well, I noticed there was a, a Republican Congressman uh, Kevin Brady. Was he uh, was he there at the committee meeting today? Yes, he has a bill. One uh, his one of his biggest legislative proposals is to eliminate the so-called dual mandate of the Fed and to get the Fed out of the business of um, trying to worry about unemployment, which which really is a more of a fiscal issue for Congress yeah. uh, than a, than a monetary issue per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he would like to get the Fed just just to control the money supply or to try to keep it at some level that, that keeps prices down. Is he worried about inflation or what? Yeah. He. I. I, I won't speak for Mr. Brady, but I think in general he would uh, want to see the Fed just focus on the inflation side, this sort of the value of the dollar itself. So a little bit more like the uh, European Central Bank supposed to, to have done until recently. I guess they're sort of backing away from that, moving more towards uh, trying to stimulate with, with quantitative easing. And I guess to a certain extent, we are helping them. I think there was a, a repo that Mr. Bedanke sent over there when they started having big problems of two, two billion, uh, two, what are we talking these days? Trillion, aren't we talking trillions these days? Two trillion dollar repo, and there was one uh, former Federal Reserve guy that was really against it. Said it's really a loan, and what Bernanke was doing was deceiving Congress, essentially telling him that it wasn't a loan; it was a repo. But he said basically it's a loan. Um, well, I mean, it's it's a currency swap, uh, yeah. but basically it allows the European banks to have a bunch of liquidity in the form of U.S. dollars without having to, the, the the ECB having to print. Euro and 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 risk inflation. So uh, it, it it's it's a debt. It, it it ought to be on our books that way, but yeah. uh, it's not. Well, it's deceitfulness from the Fed. Uh, just a minute left. What about uh, John Taylor? What is he all about? He's a very well-known economist, I know, and is, I hear about him frequently on Bloomberg here in New York. But what 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 did he have to say? Well, certainly, Dr. Paul disagrees with him, but he's he's very much respected uh, on the right. Um, mm-hmm. His his view is perhaps more of a Friedmanite monetarist uh, in yeah. the sense that he would view the, the, the current Fed policy as bad, but he wouldn't view central banks themselves as untenable. He, he would uh, uh, maybe like Paul Volcker, you know, call for some monetary austerity uh, and maybe even rising interest rates to reflect a little more reality. So uh, he's an interesting guy, and he gets uh, uh, huge coverage whenever he uh, opines. Right. Well, you've had some pretty prestigious guests then today, and then again, people can go to uh, they should they should Google what was it House the House Banking the House Committee Financial or, Services Committee House Financial Services Committee and just Google that, and then probably there will be a link right to the uh, or, or just go to house.gov house dot gov, and people can also follow stuff that Ron does all the time. Uh, what, what's a good website there in case people aren't aware? Well, just house.gov and then slash Paul for Ron Paul. Yeah. That's uh, excellent. 
Uh, we are out of time, unfortunately, Jeff. Thank you very much again for coming on, sharing uh, uh, the goings-on in Dr. Paul's office, and uh, really a pleasure talking to you. Um, look forward to having you back again sometime, and also want to meet up with a friend that you introduced me to when we, Teresa and I were down there in Washington, Glenn Downs, as a chief of staff of uh, Congressman Jones. Hope to have him on, perhaps the two of you on together sometime soon Absolutely. in the future. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. All right, take care, folks. Don't go away. I'll be right back with some closing thoughts on today's show and also about next week's show. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Uh, well, I'd just like to pass along some of my thoughts from today's show. Very interesting show. Uh, I, I think we had a lot of interesting ideas, uh, certainly provocative ideas that we might not necessarily like, ideas that, quite frankly, I don't like. I don't like to think about $900 gold right now. I have a lot invested in gold, um, gold bullion as well as um, gold shares. It's what I write my newsletter about. It's what I talk about on this show. Our sponsors are gold mining companies. So, um, you know, I have a lot of reason not to want to believe what Paul was suggesting. On the other hand, um, you've got to listen to a guy that thinks objectively. And, uh, I, you know, don't dismiss what Paul has to say. Uh, he is, a, I think, a very intellectually honest person. Uh, he, he definitely does his own thinking. Uh, and so sometimes uh, he may, may not always be right. I'm not trying to say that I necessarily agree with uh, his appraisal, but uh, at, I wouldn't discount it. Uh, I think uh, Paul's track record is good enough. He certainly deserves a lot of respect. I'd also mention that uh, with respect to his bullishness on the U.S. economy, uh, it seems counterintuitive to, to suggest that higher interest rates would coincide with a, with a um, uh, you know with a growing economy and, and good times. But certainly, you know, if people are starting to if if they're rewarded for saving. Uh, and rewarded for not consuming, then the habits will change. And longer term, I certainly agree that that will bring about uh, better times ahead for us, uh, uh, for sure. I'm, I'm somewhat more worried than Paul is, perhaps. Paul lives in Canada. Maybe somewhat more worried about civil disorders and uh, when the entitlements mentality takes over and when people believe that they're entitled to the same kind of good lifestyle that they've always enjoyed, and when that isn't forthcoming because taxes rise or services are taken away, uh, you have to wonder how Americans, uh, increasingly spoiled Americans, I believe, and people, as we're seeing in Western Europe, respond when, when times get tough. Uh, maybe it brings out the best in some people and the worst in others. 
Um, but I think we want to keep our eye, uh, we want to try to remain objective and seek truth, not my truth or Paul Van Eden's truth or Rick Rule's truth or anybody else's, but what is the objective truth. And towards that end, next week we're going to have uh, some more people that might sort of ruffle the feathers of some of us. And uh, certainly um, when I have Naomi Oreskes is going to be on, she's the author of a book on global warming. We had uh, we had Bob Hoy on here a number of weeks ago, and he, of course, Bob, is very much uh, adamantly believes that uh, global warming is not caused by human beings, but rather by uh, by nature, natural forces. And we had Brent Cook, who followed Bob Hoy, who uh, a scientist, a geoscientist, who believes the opposite. And uh, Brent, though, knows his limits and suggested that I talk to Naomi Ariscus, uh, who's written an excellent book. She'll be on next week uh, on the show to talk about and give her evidence why uh, global warming is a problem and why it is uh, it is really driven by by human beings' activity, uh, by the industrial age, and so forth. So. Well, Naomi will be here to talk about that, and we're also going to talk uh, to uh, Mikey Weinstein of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. Now that Mikey talks about a lot of the things that are going on in our military today, the whole notion of, um, uh, uh, especially among some Christian fundamentalist groups that believe that we need to, uh, well, in my day, when I was a young man, it was kill a commie for Christ, now it's kill a Muslim for Christ. It's very uh, hateful, spiteful attitudes that certainly seem... Uh, anything but the sort of Christianity that I was uh, presented with as a young man, the notion of, of loving one another rather than hating people and uh, and hating them because they think differently. We want to try to keep an open mind on this show and seek the truth. That's uh, what we try to do. So we will have some uh, some people on this show that I don't necessarily want to, I don't want to necessarily hear their views, but I respect their intellect and their honesty, and that's what we want to look forward to. So next week, um, Naomi Ariscus. And Mikey Weinstein will be with me. I want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. Um, thanks to each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on Voice America. Oh, I should mention that we're going to have John Lee on next week as well, Prophecy Platinum. Uh, and uh, this is a stock that Chen Lin likes a whole lot as well. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.